from the book of Genesis. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. We're continuing with our summer of Genesis, and uh, we're following the story of our scoundrel Jacob as he has his first encounter with God. And if you can remember your first encounter with, with God, it's a, it's a momentous occasion, and it kind of knocks him flat. If you're following along, it's kind of weird doing this series, right? It's like scenes from the last episode. Um, if you're following along, you'll remember that last week, Jacob had swindled his brother Esau of both his birthright and then his blessing. And he was successful at doing it. And so one of the things, you know, one of the places that we left Jacob is, you know, he, he had this plan, he set out to accomplish it, and it worked, which sounded great. The problem was, and it's kind of like, a, what is it, the dog that caught the car? You know, the problem was, when you swindle your older, bigger, hunter, outdoorsman brother of his birthright and his blessing, and your dad is dying, and so you have no protection, you get to a kind of a now what moment, right? It's like, I did it, I accomplished it, this is great, now what? You know, my, my youngest son, Asher, he learned how to operate doorknobs and locks and light switches at the same time. And so what happened? We found him locked in the laundry room with the lights off because he didn't know what he was doing, right? It's like, I accomplished all the things I sought to do, and then you get to a point where you're just like, there's consequences to this, apparently. We've all been there. Well, that's, you know, that's kind of where we left, that's kind of where we come to Jacob in our text. He gets to this place, and, and he's in a lot of trouble. You know, Esau was feeling a little bit murderous and a lot vengeful, and so their mother, Rebecca, says, I've got an idea. And you'll notice Rebecca in these stories is, is like the great schemer in all of these things. Rebecca says, you know, I cannot stand Esau's wives. And by the way, this is kind of like the first mother-in-law conflict in recorded history. I can't stand Esau's wives. So Jacob, why don't you go, you know, a month away, 550 miles to my homeland and find yourself a wife? Let's get you out of Dodge for a while until things cool down. Now, nobody knew that this was going to end up being a 20-year-long um, a journey for him, but that's kind of how the story lays itself out. And so Jacob goes, and on his trip, he runs almost immediately headfirst into the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and soon to be the God of Jacob. And so we've got two points as we look at our passage for today. Uh, I had to limit it to do because, you know, alliteration's a thing, and I couldn't find another C word. So we have the condescension of God and the commitment of God, the condescension of God and the commitment of God. If you have your bulletins, uh, I would encourage you to follow along with me in the text. If you're online, uh, you'll have those posted next to you on the video. Uh, if we look back at our text together, this is, this is where it brings us. Jacob falls asleep, and he has a vivid dream, and he has this vision of a ladder or a stairway to heaven. You guys are familiar with that, right? Like Jacob's ladder, stairway to heaven, Led Zeppelin. I, I see some heads nodding. Um, you know, the reason that it's interpreted both ways is because, honestly, the word in Hebrew can mean either one, ladder or stairway. And, and so he falls asleep, and he has this vivid dream of a ladder or stairway, and God stands either above or beside the stairway, and he speaks to him. And it's really an introduction because so far, Jacob has, has not ever encountered God. In fact, he's only mentioned God one time, and that's when he was using God as a way to deceive his father. 
It's not really a good, good way to invoke God's name, but that's what he does. And, and God comes to him anyway. And God reveals himself in your story, right? He reveals himself to Jacob in a way that Jacob would recognize. That's what God often does is he reveals himself to us in ways that we understand. There's a stairway to heaven in this text. And that would have been a really familiar, you know, to us that might sound strange, but to Jacob that was a familiar, that was a familiar image. You all know what a ziggurat is? Anybody familiar with that? Okay, so a ziggurat in the area of Mesopotamia where Jacob was were these enormous temple complexes. And they had this huge single path of stairs that went straight up the middle to where you, 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 know, you had to climb hundreds of steps to get to the holy of holies at the top. It was a familiar religious image, and so God comes to him in a way that Jacob understands and shows him this, this stairway that he would have been familiar with. And to reach that holy place at the top, you, you, know, you had to go up to God. You had to make your way to the top. And it's essential to Jacob's understanding of religion, by the way, this idea of a stairway. Work your way up in righteousness and effort and sacrifice to win an audience with God. That's most people's understanding of religion, right? Work your way up in righteousness with sacrifice and an effort to make your way to God. And that might sound archaic to you, but that's actually how you and I operate. That's how you, that's our default operation is trying to work our way to God. I want you to think for a second, what are all of the ladders that you sought to climb in your life? You know, for some of us, it's like, you know, the corporate ladder, right? It's, it's the ladder of professional achievement. For some of us, it was a social ladder, right? I mean, I know for me, I transferred middle schools. Uh, we moved in the middle of my sixth grade year. And by the way, middle schools are like you know, that's the jungle, right? I mean, middle schools and prisons are kind of like, you know, there's some comparability between the two. But I moved in my sixth grade year, had no friends in the place I got, and so what was the natural ladder for me to attempt to climb? A social ladder, by any means necessary. And you've had these in your life, right? Maybe it's the intellectual ladder. Like, that's your goal. That's your pursuit. I'm going to read the biggest books and the most of those biggest books, right? So you're trying to climb a ladder and achieve something. The moral ladder, right? I want to be the best person I can possibly be, and I'm going to work towards that. And it's interesting. I want you to think about the ladder that you climbed and what it is that you were aiming for. What were you aiming for? What were you hoping to achieve? Well, an ideal. You were striving and aiming toward an ideal, and you might not have known it at the time, because the ideal probably took the form of some person. Has anybody had somebody in their life that they've modeled their life after? They said, you know what, that person has what I want to have. They are who I want to be. They've got these qualities that start to shape you, and so you do things in order to make yourself like your ideal, that model person. Anybody ever been there? Was it familiar to you? I'm going to shape myself to be like this person. That person has something that I don't and I want to. And they're your ideal. I want to be like my boss's boss's boss. I want to be a parent like so-and-so because they're thoughtful and attentive and care for their kids. Or I want to be as respected as he is. Or I want to be as admired as she is. And then this is what happens when you work your way up your ladder, up your ideal. The higher you climb, the closer you get to that person, your ideal shifts to a higher ideal. The, the mark moves. Are you all familiar with this? Is this, is this part of your lives? You become, you become close enough to your ideal, and then the ideal kind of shifts and it moves to something higher. And you're like, oh, no, that person or that place or that thing. And then you work your way up again, and it shifts again. And what's interesting is if you had infinite gifts and skills and abilities and time 
every ladder, every ladder that you sought to climb, and they're all different, right? We all have different emphases, would have had its final, its total, its end ideal in who? Who's the ultimate ideal of every ladder, of every climb upward? It's God. And what's amazing about that is most people are searching for God and they have no idea. They have no idea. You know, one of the interesting things about this pandemic that um, you see play out all, you know, all over the place is that people who have been quarantined or self-isolated have started to pick up new hobbies, right, or tempted to relearn something that they had put down or they have all of these new ventures that they're trying to build themselves up into and go into. And at the end of every single one of these ventures, of every single one of these endeavors is God. And, but we don't think like that, do we? In fact, a lot of us use these ladders, use these pursuits as a way to actually avoid God or avoid prayer because we still feel like we're searching for something, we're accomplishing something, and we're trying to better ourselves. But you know, most people who climb these ladders, they hope that once they reach the top of whatever ladder they're trying to climb, they will have created for themselves a meaningful life that justifies their existence. And they're seeking absolution and with it, peace. If I'm a good enough person or good enough at this, it can wipe away all of the things that I know about myself that cling to me. They're seeking God. You know, Jacob's pursuit, when he was, rest, when he was um, swindling Esau and trying to put all the pieces together to create this perfect life, was this exact sort of pursuit. If only I have the birthright and the blessing and become the great man, the great name. And he worked feverishly at it because he knew his own shortcomings, just like you and I. In fact, the people who are most aware of their weaknesses are typically the ones who are most endeavoring to climb something in order to escape from them. The problem, though, isn't this the problem that you and I face, is that Jacob's ladder, the stairway to heaven, is a place where only angels tread. Because no matter how gifted or talented or how many abilities that you have, you are still mortal and still fallible, and you will get to a steel ceiling that you cannot pass. An absolution, the justification of your existence, peace, that ultimately meaningful life will just remain a little bit outside of your grasp. You know, like Tantalus, who reaches for the fruit and he, he just can never quite get it and he bends down to drink the water and it recedes from him before he can reach it in Greek mythology. It's that same concept. Try as we might, not one of us can become the greatest possible ideal. But Jacob's too young to know this. You know, Jacob's, Jacob's still driven to be this upwardly mobile person by any means necessary, and that includes deceiving and betraying members of his own family. And so because Jacob cannot reach God, God condescends to Jacob. Now, typically, when you hear the word condescending, it's with a negative connotation, right? Everybody familiar use the word as a negative way. And, we, you know, when we say condescending, typically we say, you know, you're, you're um, patronizing, you're belittling, you know, maybe you're acting snarky uh, or dismissive or arrogant, right? That's what we say, you know, you're being condescending. And, if, you know, if you watch the news at all or on social media at all or just have caustic friends and family members, you see this a lot, don't you? Much easier to be dismissive and condescending um, in this connotation and to actually engage with people and meet them where they are and give them the benefit of the doubt in Christian charity and humility. But that's, that's, not, that's not the condescending that God does. You know, condescend is a really old word, like 14th century old. 
and it originally meant merely to come down from one's rights or claims, to yield consent, to acquiesce. You know, God condescends to Jacob in the same way that we speak to our young ones. One of the first things you learn when you're working with preschool students, or if you just have young ones of your own, is that if you want to approach them and connect with them, what do you do? You get down onto their level so that you're making eye contact with them. You get down to their level so that you can address them so that they know that they are seen and heard by you. And it elevates their status in your eyes. You condescend. And that's the way that God meets Jacob. He lowers himself as far as he needs to to meet Jacob where he is. And by the way, that's exactly what God does with us. There's this really fascinating story in the New Testament. It's in John chapter 1. And in this story, Jesus is, Jesus is hanging out, and Philip, one of his uh, disciples, and he's a brand new disciple, he meets Jesus, you know, he hears all about Jesus' teaching, and he's like incredibly excited about it. And then, G- and then Philip goes, and he finds his friend Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, you've got to hear this guy. This guy's amazing. Like, come see him. Come see him. So Philip and Nathaniel go to Jesus. And, you know, there's an introduction, and, and Jesus says, you know, basically, I saw you coming. Nathaniel's like, what are you talking about? And Jesus is like, I saw you sitting under the fig tree before you even came here. Now, that blows Nathaniel's mind, right? How in the, how in the world did you see it? But then Jesus has something really interesting, and he actually references our text in Genesis for today. He says this. He says, you think that's something? You're going to see heaven opened and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's Jesus saying here? Well, he's referencing Jacob's ladder. He's saying that that stairway that Jacob couldn't climb, the stairway where only angels could tread, That's me. That's why I'm here. That impossible chasm between you and God where you've reached your last ladder or your last step and you're exhausted and worn out or just flat out of time and you haven't made it. That's my role. That's why I've come to bridge that gap and to be a ladder that you can climb. I'm here to provide a way for you to seize these full promises of God. But what the disciples don't know when Jesus is talking about a ladder And what Jacob hasn't realized yet is that such ladders are built on sacrifice. And ladder, any ladder to the ideal can only be built on the ideal sacrifice. I mean, you know that conceptually, right? We go back to those ladders or stairways that you've tried to climb. How much did you have to give up? The the longer the stairway, the higher the aim, the more sacrifice it cost. All ladders, all stairways are built on sacrifice. And so to have the ideal ladder, the ideal stairway, the only way that you can actually reach the very temple mount and reach God has to be built on that ideal, that perfect sacrifice. Which brings us to our second point, the level of commitment that God has made to his people. So point two, first we had the, the condescension of God, God coming down to us and building a ladder because we can't reach him. And point two is the commitment of God. Let's look back at our text starting at verse 13. So we've kind of covered the ladder idea, right, the ladder image. Starting in verse 13, God has condescended to speak with Jacob, and he invites Jacob into this relationship that he had established with Jacob's grandfather and his father, right? He introduces himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, but he's not yet the God of Jacob. They haven't been introduced. 
Again, Jacob's been pursuing him but has no idea about that. And so he invites him to be a part of this incredible, insane blessing. The relationship is the relationship with God that he lays out there. You know, you're going to have all of this land and all of these descendants, and you're going to be blessed, and I'm going to walk with you. You know, to us, because, because of the way our society is built, land isn't as big of a deal, but then it was a symbol of wealth. God's basically saying, you know, you're going to win the Powerball five times in a row. You're going to have an enormous family that you can share this with, and I'm going to be with you and bless you in all of these ways. It's a covenant that he's entering into. It's an agreement. It's a treaty. If you don't know, it's an incredible one. If you don't know what a covenant is, this is, this is incredibly helpful to know. A covenant is just a treaty or contract where a greater king enters into an agreement with a lesser king. That's what's happening here. It's a covenant. And typically, what happens, right, is the lesser king with less power and less authority and less troops swears fealty to the greater king. You know, I will serve you. You will be my king. And then the the greater king says, okay, great. I'm going to protect you. And then the lesser king makes a sacrifice to commemorate the event and walks through it. And the reason the lesser king does this is what he's saying is, if I break this treaty with you, let what happened to this animal happen to me. That's, that's the commitment. You all follow me on that? I mean, it's, it's, it's a binding commitment. Well, God had established this covenant that Jacob was being invited into, right? Jacob, Isaac, I mean, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God had established this covenant with Abraham that he would be his God and Abraham would be blessed. And then God does something that's unbelievable, by the way. This is in Genesis 15. Abraham prepares the animals and lays them out, but God is the one who walks through the sacrifice. And it blows your mind, because what God is saying is, if I break this commitment to you, let what happened to these animals happen to me. God is saying that. If the covenant is not upheld, I will be the sacrifice. That's God's level of commitment to us. You know, it's, it's an ironclad commitment. It's stronger than any vow. It's far stronger even than for better or worse, rich or poor, and sickness and health. I mean, this is God's vow to us. And this is the covenant. This is the ironclad covenant of blessing that God is inviting Jacob into. Look at verse 13. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. There shall be like the dust of the earth, and through them all families shall be blessed. And then God adds something to his covenant that he didn't say to Abraham, and he only intimated to Isaac. He says this. He says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. You see a lot of internet jokes right now about what a bizarre year it's been. Have you guys seen these? Like, you know, January, Australian wildfires. You know, February through, through what is, who even knows now? Um, through July, pandemic. And then, you know, the news tried to throw us like some silly things like, oh, murder hornets. Or, um, gosh, what was the latest one? Oh, bubonic plague and squirrels. Or, you know, like all these fun little things. And, and it's just like, okay, we, we get it. Uh, tough year. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you've experienced a lot of people during this time are, are having a you know, skyrocketing anxiety. Depression is skyrocketing, especially for young people who are out of school and aren't used to, and, and, you know, aren't used to being, you know, missing that social interaction. There's enormous uncertainty. I mean, we saw that early on with the stock market, right? There's just enormous uncertainty about what the future holds. Some people are still out of work. 
and they don't have promising prospects. You know, and some people are concerned that our country is going through a fundamental shift that will forever change what, who we are as a country. And there's a whole other side of people who are concerned that it won't go through this fundamental shift, that it won't go out the other side. And so we have all of this, you know, all of this turmoil that's been happening this year, and all, and, and all of this noise and all of this um, anxiety and frustration and fear, my concern is that the assurance of God's commitment is going unheeded. You know, you might know this about the way that your brain works. Your limbic system, when, it get, you know, when your heart rate beats, I think it's about 100 beats per minute, when your heart rate rises over 100 beats per minute, your brain, your limbic system takes over. That's your reptilian brain, right? The one that just freaks out. It takes over, and your prefrontal cortex, where all your reasoning is, your higher reasoning, is totally circumvented. That's why you ever say something really dumb in an argument, like you're angry, and you just say like the most ridiculous thing to try to make a point, and you think back later, and you're like, oh man, like that was, you know, I, I reverted to a toddler. You know, I mean, that's what happens, is that gets circumvented. And so, for enough people, if your emotions are riding high for long enough, you just get into this world of fear and anxiety that takes over. And that's why this text, by the way, is so important for us, especially now, because this covenant that God made with Abraham, that behold, I will be with you wherever you go, is the same covenant that Christians have been invited into. I will be with you wherever you go. The book of Hebrews, God commits to us, never will I leave you nor forsake you. That's big. Matthew 28, behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. We're invited into this covenant. Paul tells us in Galatians, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That's us. That's why, by the way, these old stories are so important to us is because this is our lineage. It's not just an example of how God deals with people. It's, it's a demonstration of how God deals with us and an actualizing of His commitment. So, of all people, Christians have the least cause for despair. I mean, look at what God's already done. We already have seen the descendants of Abraham become more numerous than the sand on the seashore. There are currently 2.3 billion Christians on the planet. You think that's not a realization of God's promise? Plucking a man out of obscurity and delivering on this? Think of how many Christians who have existed before us and add them to the number, and how many Christians who will come after us, God willing that the planet's still standing, right? more numerous than the sand on the seashore. And we've already experienced the riches of God's blessing. We talked about our inheritance last week, right? That fact that God is with us and has given us all of these promises. The fact that we have access through prayer, the fact that He walks alongside us, and the fact that we've got eternal life to go in, you know, eternal life as our hope and our destination. So what are we worried about? Are we worried that God isn't going to bring His promises to completion? Are we worried that He's not going to fulfill His covenant with us? Or, or are we just worried that life's going to get harder? Well, you know what? The New Testament is clear. Jesus pulled no punches. He said, the world will hate you because it hated me. There will be persecution, and you will have to endure it. Christians, we know the world's going to get harder. That's not news to us. It's going to get worse before it gets better, maybe significantly so, and there's going to be a cost associated with that. But the Bible's up front about it. The question is, do you believe that God will stick with you to the end? Do you believe 
that he is fully committed to you? And are you able to answer that commitment to him, come what may? Well, let's check in with Jacob before we close in prayer. Uh, if you look at your text, Jacob awakens from his vision, his vision, and it's really interesting what he does. Do you notice what he does? He sets up a pillar, right? A stone. You all caught that? Well, what's fascinating is when Abraham encountered God, he set up something different. You know what he set up? An altar. Here's the difference between an altar and a pillar. And by the way, it's interesting. Um, in Deuteronomy and Exodus, God says he hates pillars. Jacob doesn't know that yet, right? He's just like, well, I don't really know you, God, so here's a pillar. Um, but the difference, the fundamental difference for Jacob, for Abraham, and for you and I between, an, between a stone, a, a pillar, and an altar is this. A stone merely commemorates an event. That's why we have tombstones, by the way, commemorating a life. Stones commemorate events. Altars are indicative of sacrifice. What's happening here is God has fully committed himself to Jacob, but Jacob, being the scoundrel that he is, he wakes up and he says this to God. Did you catch that? If you do all these things, if you come through, if you follow through, and by the way, you know, blessings are great and being with me and all this stuff, but I also want clothing and food. You know, so, you know, it's like, God, this is great, but I want, you know, maybe up, it, up the ante a little bit. And if you do all of these things, then you will be my God. That's not commitment. Jacob's not all in. He's setting up a pillar, and he's not setting up an altar. He's not yet ready to commit himself to go all in with God, but God still commits to be with him anyway. You know, I'm sure that there are plenty of times in your life when you come before the throne of the Lord and you've experienced um, some incredible worship or you've heard something that resonated with you and, you, you know, you walked away from church and you're like, you know, something's going to change. I'm going to do something different. And then you woke up on Monday morning and it was a fading memory and maybe you set up a pillar, but you weren't quite ready to set up that altar. You weren't quite ready to make that sacrifice and that commitment. You weren't quite ready to pay the cost that that life change would, make, would cause you to pay. I mean, that's all of us, right? But one of the things that is incredibly profound and important for us in this passage that God has not done with Jacob yet. You know, Jacob is just like all of us. You're, we're going to see in the coming weeks, especially starting next week and the week after, that Jacob is like you and like me. He has to learn his lessons the hard way. But because God is with him, he is not shy about bringing Jacob through the trials that he needs to get through in order to fully become one of God's people. And God finishes his work with him, or as Paul writes in Philippians, to us, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're incredibly thankful for the commitment that you have made to us, the fact that even as we stray, we have but to turn to you and you will welcome us back to the fold. I pray that you would continue to turn our hearts toward you, that we would be open and willing and ready to receive you because you have made a commitment to dwell within us. And so, God, I pray that even as you have committed yourself to us and you have promised us that you will bring us through our sanctification, you will bring us through the heart change that is required, 
that we would remember you will not give up on us, and I pray that we would not give up on ourselves either. I pray that you would give us peace in this season that we are going through, and that our eyes would be fixed on you. In your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook. Facebook.